Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous to your contracts, they said, What the f are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Writers on Film, the only podcast dedicated to books on cinema. Hi everybody, welcome to Writers on Film. My name is John Bleasdell, I'm a writer and film critic, and today I'm going to be talking to Paul Fisher, who is the author of a new book called The Man Who Invented Motion Pictures, A True Tale of Obsession, Murder and the Movies. It's a great book, a history of the very earliest days of the motion picture industry and the men and women who had a hand in inventing them. So it's a really interesting story and one that uh, I can pretty much guarantee you will add to your knowledge I, there's some revelations in there that I found really surprising really interesting so uh, I'm going to be talking to him um, and it's a um, yeah it's going to be great so if you like the episode please remember to uh, like subscribe and do all that other stuff that I ask you to do you can follow me on twitter at drjonty d-r-j-o-n-t-y uh, over the next couple of weeks I'm going to be attending some uh, film festivals right into September actually I'm going to be at Locarno and then I'm going to Sarajevo and then I'm going to Venice so uh, uh, the episodes should still keep coming but I'll also try to put up some interviews with film critics and people that I meet along the way to talk about film books and what they're interested in as well anyway before any of that happens though enjoy the conversation It's an interesting thing because I grew up in France um, where it's kind of just assumed the Lumiere brothers invented the movies. That's just how it is. Case closed. 
Um, and I remember being a kid and occasionally someone would come up going, hey, you know, masha, masha, someone made a camera before them. And you'd always look into it and go, well, that thing didn't work. Mm. That doesn't count. Um, and so you'd kind of dispute it. And then I went to film school in the U.S. And it seemed like the people there, it was also an open and shut case that it was Thomas Edison. And there's just no kind of question about it. The whole projection thing, just the French thing, it doesn't matter. And I guess the thing about Le Prince, I, I, I found out about him, looked into it. I was, you know, kind of, I guess, in the first place, amazed by this thing of, I assumed he'd be one of those people like the other guys, where, you know, I came across Louis Le Prince. There's this novel by Theodore Rorschach called Flickr, mm. which is kind of like a Da Vinci code, but about the movies. And there's this idea in the conspiracy thriller novel that the movies are kind of a mind control Illuminati thing. But he does that thing where he mixes in real life stuff with made up stuff. And there's a bit in the book where he brings up this guy, the Prince, who made the first film and he disappeared. And it was years before the Lemire brothers or Thomas Edison. And I remember being on this holiday, reading this book, getting to that bit and going, oh, that's a, is that one of the real bits or one of the made up bits? That sounds mm. like a real bit. And so I looked it up. And the thing that was interesting about the Prince was like he had existed, he had disappeared, he had made these films that existed still, at least in part, and the cameras were still there, and the projector was still there, and the patents were there, and they had been granted, and it seemed very, very legit. But I'd never heard of him, and I was kind of obsessive about the whole period from inventing the movies like Georges Méliès and all these people who had kind of like tragic endings. I kind of like people who come really close to something that kind of slips through their fingers. And mm. somehow, I'd never heard of him. Um, and so it feels to me, from my perspective, that it's it's never really been seriously disputed because the people that are brought up um, aren't kind of serious contenders, but Le Prince was. And somehow, for a confluence of reasons, he kind of slipped through the cracks. And the thing that was interesting about him slipping through the cracks in me too is in both cases of the Lemire brothers and Thomas Edison, we kind of framed the invention of movies as a technological thing, as, mm. you know, an advancement of technology rather than an artistic thing. And Le Prince was someone who was more in the lineage of people doing something creative mm. than he was an engineer or an industrialist or someone like that. And so it was cool to think of, of this idea of like, oh, the first film ever made wasn't some kind of technological breakthrough per se necessarily it was like a home movie mm. um you know as a guy filming his family in a backyard walking around in circles because he had this idea for an extension of photography creatively um but yeah i don't have a sense that you know i didn't grow up thinking it's a dispute who invented mm. the movies i've never met people who are like you know well that's not the case and and that's kind of stood up um but like, there's really no way you can argue Le Prince didn't make the oldest film we have. Mm, right. And somehow no one knows him. Yeah, right. His name has no sort of recognition value the way the Lumiere brothers do, the uh, Edison does. Yeah. You know, we have cinemas which are named, you know, the Edison uh, in, in my town and, and the Lumiere <laughs> um, is a theatre in, in Cannes that I, I, I go to. Yeah. So. Yeah. And it's this thing as well, which I think writing the book was interesting is the reason he's forgotten kind of plays on how we write film history 
mm. and how it is influenced by these kind of nationalistic images of what this technology represents about a certain culture and its kind of cultural ownership of the 20th century. And Le Prince, in a very modern way, was kind of homeless. You know, he was kind of a Frenchman who'd been born in a part of France that had been Germany for a while and he lived in England, but he also went to America and he wanted to get American citizenship. And so, in a way, there were two things to why he was forgotten that were fascinating to me. One was that bit, that there was no one to kind of claim him mm. as a kind of national pride thing. And then he never sold a ticket. There's kind of this built-in assumption that you've invented a thing if you sold a ticket to it or if you've sold it to someone. Mm. That's meant to be what makes it work. And if you've made a movie but you haven't sold a ticket, then have you really made a movie? And that's a weirdly kind of modern capitalistic Hollywoody idea, but it's baked in right there in how we think of who got there first. Yeah, it's almost like nowadays, do you really have a blog or a podcast if you're not monetizing it? You know, I mean, yeah, you know, it's that that same idea, really. Yeah, which is kind of stuff we do. Like I, I was never able to say I wrote until somebody bought something I wrote. Yeah. You know, otherwise you just get kind of weird about it. And he was that guy where you're like, well, the camera's there, the projector's there, the film's there. But did someone pay to see it? Mm, mm. I think it's interesting as well, the point that you make about the geography, because um, he, he's also working in Leeds, isn't he? <laughs> which is yeah. which is not Manchester, it's not London. It's not like a, a, a real, I mean, it's a relatively large industrial city in the north of England, but it, it, it's away from the center of power in a way. Yeah, and it's weird how we've narrowed down the places that matter even more since then. Because back then, Leeds was a big deal, and there were a bunch mm. of cities that were a big deal. But now it's kind of London, New York, Tokyo, Paris, or bus, really, kind mm. of thing. Because um, he was a guy who'd moved from Paris to Leeds and was like, this place is a big deal, and I fit in here. And, and you know, because Le Prince, for people who haven't read the book, you know, he's kind of a bourgeois French young guy at the beginning of the book who has no... I guess, clear ambition or purpose of what he wants to do. And he goes to Leeds and he meets all these engineers and industrialists who are involved in the industrial revolution. And it's this idea that you can come up with something and then get a patent to it and claim it mm. that's driving the world. And that's happening in Leeds and Manchester and Bradford and all these places and not necessarily London. And even in New York, New York was Edison, really. It was like, kind of like a one-man town mm. for that kind of stuff. Um, so, you know, like I've lived in England 12, 13 years, and I remember moving and 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 kind of assimilating that weird thing. We're like, there's London and then there's all the other places. Yeah, London's almost like a different part of the country. I've I've like students yeah. from Italy who say, oh, I've been to London. It's kind of like, eh, probably <laughs> you, you haven't quite been to England then. You know, I mean, you've, you've been to the London version of England, which is great, but it's... Uh, I mean, the majority of people who live in London weren't born there. The majority of people who live in London won't die there. It's that kind of town, you know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Which I remember, you know, as a foreigner, the whole Brexit thing it really underlined that thing of like, oh, yeah, this is a different place from the rest of the country, which I guess all capitals and and, and kind of the rest of the countries in the West are becoming that way. But Leeds at the time, like, was a big deal. And it was... Um, I think to your point, 
there's also no sexiness to that. Do you know what I mean? Like we want mm. to be like Thomas said, if New York is the birthplace of the movies, Hollywood is a place where it all happens. There's almost an assumption like I remember reading the book and going, well, it can't be Leeds. Why would it be Leeds? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's interesting that you, you correct me on that point, uh, actually, that I was kind of doing that. I was doing the modern thing of going, oh, he was at Leeds. Nobody, no wonder nobody noticed him. And, yeah. and yet you're saying, no, no, I, in the 19th century, that was, the, that was a hotbed of innovation. Yeah, it really was. Like all, these, all those cities in that area. And, but that's also, you know, another part of how we think about history, I suppose, in a way, is it's become like we assimilate all these things about what sounds right that doesn't sound right. Mm. And like I had a thing coming to this where like I never had this idea kind of ego to go i'm writing something no one has ever written about before like mm. it's all been done and it, it's you know i guess the positive flip side of that is this idea that we don't think of non-fiction authors as having a voice or kind of a point of view but it, it we we do and that kind of makes the book too um but we assimilate these ideas and it also colors how we tell these stories like there's been documentaries about the prince and stories about the prince that is so attached to the idea of restoring Leeds almost as much as restoring him. Mm. Mm. And in a weird way that undercuts your argument because you're sort of shooting off the side of gold, mm. as it were. But you're com you're combating this this other assumption um, rather than the point itself, which, you know, if I was from Leeds or something and everyone else's assumption was nothing important could have fucking happened there. <laughs> and you're like, well, the reason you've got the trains and the things and all this stuff in the 19th century is us. And now it, it, it's, we're considered kind of irrelevant. Mm. Um, yeah, you would want to kind of speak up about that. Yeah, I, I, and I can, I can track your 13 years in England by your uh, sporting metaphors as well. You're shooting wider goals. <laughs> <laughs> we um, just for, for our, our listeners who, who may not yet have read the book they, they will yeah. soon i'm absolutely sure but um uh, uh le prince is 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 operating operating from well he's he's born around about the mid 19th century is that right yeah 1841 right so around about yeah 1841 perfect and then uh, in france in a yeah. it, it, um it, he's not like he's born in a sort of town which is connected to paris but not um uh, not particularly close right that's right, yeah. He was born in Metz, which is right on the eastern border between France and what was then Prussia, Germany. Right. Um, and, and that was territory, the whole of Alsace-Lorraine, which was, you know, in the hundred or so years before that, it really felt like it was German one minute and French the next, and it was very disputed, that kind of whole entry into the Rhine Valley thing. And so Louis Le Prince was born in Metz in 1841, and he's kind of born into this world that's still horse carts, and no one leaving their hometown and letters and you know kind of still pre-industrial revolution mm. and he grows up in this time of amazing change it's kind of comparable to now i suppose if i think of my grandmother to like TikTok, where you know by the time he's in his 30s people are traveling across the atlantic and you've got the telegraph and you've got steam trains and you've got news being reported from around the world and the world's kind of exploding and he's a guy who's kind of interested in art and he paints and he takes photographs and he allegedly has met Louis Daguerre, one of the inventors of photography when he was a kid. Um, 
but also has a kind of scientific bent. And he goes to university to study optics and chemistry. And he kind of develops all these skills, doesn't really know what to do with them, meets a woman from Yorkshire called Elizabeth Whitley, falls in love, goes back to Leeds, marries her, starts working at a family firm, which is one of those kind of iron forge factory businesses where they make, you know, boiler knobs and a bunch of other stuff I don't understand. And while he's there, he starts kind of trying to combine his artistic photographic endeavors with trying to invent new processes. And one of the things he comes up with is this idea, kind of almost by accident, that if you could make photographs move, then you could basically recreate life. Mm. And the hook about Le Prince is if you, Thomas Edison comes out with his kind of motion picture thing in 1891, and the Lumiere brothers have their first screening in 1895, Le Prince shot his, what we think of the first film, the oldest surviving film, in 1888. And it can be dated because one of the people in the film dies in 1888. Um, so you know it can be shot after that. So he makes it three years before Edison comes up with his, a whole seven years before the Lumiere brothers. But before he can make it public, before he can hold the screening, he gets on a train in France, disappears, is never seen or heard from ever again. Um, and literally months after that happens, Thomas Edison announces he's working on a thing that sounds awfully like what Le Prince had a patent for. Um, and no one knows what's happened to him or has known until now. Um, and that's kind of the hook. And the the Le Prince camera, I guess his final camera, which has one lens, is a film camera. Like one of those documentaries I was talking about, they built an exact replica of the camera and ran modern film through it. And they were like, this works. It's a camera. It's a, And it's the first recognizable, like where you would look at it and go, well, that's a film camera. Mm, not mm. like a zoetrope or a zoopraxiscope or a magic lantern that's a camera and that exists and it's still in bradford and the films exist and they've been restored but because of this disappearance he kind of gets written out of, of history because one of the things about which i don't know if it's still the case today but at least back then if someone disappeared and you found no body then their property including their intellectual property was frozen for seven years Mm. or until you found a body and then it could be declared dead so for seven years after he disappears his family can't fight for his claim they can't you know take thomas edison to court they can't start building the machines they're just stuck in this limbo and you know that seven years is enough for him to get completely erased because there's that thing too where if after that seven years if you come out when the movies are already everywhere and a huge deal and people are making you know, whatever the equivalent, equivalent back in the millions of dollars are. And you come out and you go, oh, my dad did this before anybody else, but it was like seven years ago. And like, you disappeared, like, you just sound like a lunatic. Mm, yeah. Um, you know, you sound like a fabulous. Um, and so that's kind of what happened to his family. And his disappearance had kind of tragic consequences for everybody around him. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, so for anybody who hasn't read it, the book kind of unpacks how he got to inventing the movies and then the, the kind of what happens after that yeah 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 we don't want to spoil we don't spoil spoil too much but it's uh yeah it, that hook that you talk about is that's the bit when i'm reading it that i'm thinking this is this is a movie <laughs> you know this yeah. story is a movie it is and it's it's because it's also his family his his widow wife especially became convinced thomas edison must have had a hand 
in, in him disappearing and killing him. And so because he was never found, because it's one of those unsolved Bitcoin mysteries, that's kind of the thing that stuck to anybody who knows Louis Le Prince is, is he might have been killed by Edison. Like I still will get, you know, Louis Le Prince pings on Twitter today where people are like, well, Thomas Edison had him killed. And it's, you know, you should look it up. Um, and it kind of marries that thing we have now where it's, it's the fashionable thing now is Thomas Edison was a horrible, crooked, evil person. Yeah, there's a, and there's a sort of there's a sort of Tesla. Tesla was amazing, you know. These alterna yeah. alternative figures were amazing and and magical, and they had all this thing. And this guy who sort of won won the present, if you like, weirdly yeah. weirdly has lost the future, has lost the sort of reputational battle. Yeah, and it's a really hard one to fight. Like when I was writing the book, the way I think of Edison is I think of him as kind of Steve Jobs. Mm, or right. you know a musk type figure like or i guess closer to jobs in a sense that like if you read edison's notes and papers and explanations of the film camera he had no clue how it works none whatsoever there was a guy called william dixon who worked for him who worked on it and invented it and edison kind of ran this department where he would initiate stuff that sounded like a good idea and then often help finish it um but it was a very modern kind of like, this is a company where we have a bunch of engineers and guys who work on stuff. I can't keep abreast of everything. And, you know, he busted unions and he was dishonest and he was self-agonizing and lied about stuff, but not in any way that's any different from, you know, the kind of Tony Stark archetype that was kind of born with him. Um, and so weirdly, like, I don't think of him as a villain necessarily anymore than kind of like a product of the system and someone who you know, was a bit of a shyster, commie, whatever, like most people we revere. Um, but even that, I think when people read the book, they're like, what a fucking asshole. <laughs> uh, and you're like, I'm trying to argue against that. I'm saying, this is not a big spoiler alert, but he didn't actually kill Louis Le Prince. Um, and still, the impre I think because he's been so lionized, there's been this idea, especially in the United States, that everything we have is because of this one guy. Mm. You know, this kind of mm. colossus, Prometheus stole the fire from the gods. He invented everything, which was an image he cultivated. Um, right. That I think the backlash has to be equally strong. Um, and that's the place we're at now. They're just kind of like, it, it's fashionable and popular, which is good. Not, he was terrible, never invented anything. Fraud. It's interesting as well that those comparisons with contemporary sort of people on the cutting edge of technology i guess I guess you mm. could call them i was about to say scientists but it's not really it, 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 i mean even with edison this inventing lark is as you say it's about putting the really brilliant minds together and seeing what happens rather than yeah. necessarily bringing it up yourself yeah and it's a nebulous thing about a vision like i think edison had vision but what does that mean in terms of like office hours and shift you can't really pin it down and the steve jobs thing you know, I like it because it feels really specific to me because Steve Jobs, you know, had the turtleneck and the glasses and he had the image and the jeans and Edison had his workman's coat and his cigars and it was equally tailored that this is how I appear when I'm in public and that Steve Jobs had the presentations where he comes out on stage and tells you this is what the future is and Edison would have his big features in the New York Sun where he did exactly the same thing and, you know, the same way you'll hear Steve Naki say like, oh, Steve Jobs couldn't code anything mm. you'll have people who work for edison being like he didn't understand the specifics of this stuff mm. but he kind of had a sense at least for a long time of 
this is what people want. This is what the future looks like. And this is what will sell in the same way Steve Jobs kind of did. And, you know, like Edison was massively famous. Like people, he was the most recognizable person in the Western world and Postman could deliver letters to him, which is like his name on it and no address. But even then you'd read stuff in the press where people are like, is this guy all talk? Does he over prompt? Like the same kind of stuff we'd have now before kind of like, you know, is Elon Musk's thing really just a tunnel in the ground? You'd have all that kind of stuff where he would talk a big game and not follow up. And it really matches up to the way we like to think. And this kind of ties into invention, right? And I really like this idea that stuff comes to pass because it's kind of in the air. And lots of people come at it in their own different ways. And whoever crosses the finish line first is kind of academic. But we write the history of invention and the history of how film was invented. We really focus on the guy who made it, quote unquote. So it has to be this male genius, colossus guy. Um, and Edison was the first one of those kind of figures. And, and, and like the way we think of people like him now really is we think of them like that model was for him. Mm. It's, it's also sort of calls, reveals a certain romanticism in our own way of thinking of these things, of how things are created, how yeah. things are invented, how, uh, I mean, like, I always think of the, well, I always think, I, I was thinking when you were talking of like the Wizard of Oz and how yeah. the idea of, you know, oh, um, the great Oz and you find out it's a little guy behind the machine with levers but when you think about it although that's the point of the movies like be careful of these great you know wonderful visionary things because they're in the reality it's just this little guy at the back with the levers if you think about yeah. it that's actually kind of impressive you know i mean the little guy at the back he, he <laughs> worked out how to do that and and it doesn't yeah. you know he, He's got clay feet and all the rest of it, but that that makes it more impressive rather than less so. Yeah, he's not a superhuman god. He's a he's a regular guy. He pulls it off as a little guy. It's interesting you say that because my first book, which was about these filmmakers being kidnapped to North Korea mm. by Kim Jong Il to make propaganda films, I wanted to talk about of, that. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, one of the epigraphs, I think, for part three, when they get to North Korea, or whatever, is you know, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. Because that was kind of my point about that was Kim Jong-il was this diminutive guy that no one took seriously and like the North Korean quote-unquote royal family. But he pulled off this whole, like he constructed this idea of a country through making films and operas and all this stuff. And the fact that it's just a little guy in platform shoes with a mommy complex obviously makes it a fraud but it also as you say makes it more impressive because it's like a gigantic magic trick that we're all falling for and mm -hmm. so it's not because i feel that kind of thing you're saying it's not underwhelming when you pull the curtain back and see a little guy it's kind of like you did this mm, yeah exactly yeah 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 um and i think the thing with edison too is like and, and this is one thing i wanted to do with this in a sense is we really like clean, easy answers. We really like that guy made it on that date. He's and he did it because he's a genius. And it feels like the truth about everything is it's kind of, you know, you're, you're good at some stuff and you're lucky and it's the right time and shit happens. And, you know, but I think we, we, this idea of progress is that there are these great minds and great people who come up with stuff and 
like the movies play a part in that, right? Like Edison, one of the things he was smart about was once the movies became popular, there was a shit ton of movies about Thomas Edison and about how great he was and about, you know, there's a Mickey Rooney movie and like all this stuff about, you know, little urchin boy becoming the most intelligent man on earth. Like movies are really good at harnessing that kind of simplified narrative. Mm. Um, and he was one of the first people to be like, okay, I can use this. Um, to create me for mm. the future. Mm. Yeah, that's. I mean, that is that's sort of. Um, and and at the moment, I mean, going going back to to Louis de Prince and um, yeah. uh, you know, th that's why perhaps nowadays we're in a, a stage where we're more. Um, we want to go back and revise some of those ideas, and, and yeah. you know, that I, again, you know, I mentioned Tesla just because he's, you know, David Bowie in The Prestige, and he's Ethan Hawke, I think, in Tesla. Is he Ethan Hawke? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so he's he's sort of being built up as this, as this ah, this is the real guy over here. Yeah. Um, but that in itself, that counter narrative is just as romantically sort of one eyed as as the official version. I mean, surely, yeah, surely, it isn't isn't the truth. Everybody's a bit of an asshole, <laughs> you know, and you know, yeah. like Edison's a bit of an asshole and brilliant, you know. Um, and if 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 the last twenty years have taught us any, everything, there are a lot of people in the world who are assholes, but also good at what they do, you know. For sure. And what, so one of the questions that comes up a lot about this is, hey, so if uh, Louis Le Prince hadn't disappeared, how would the movies be different? And I'm always like, I don't know. He might have been a gigantic prick. He might have been like, I own this. I worked very hard. I almost bankrupted my family. It's mine, period. Or he might have been terrible, Or but we romanticized him because he disappeared. Mm. So we get to inject all, you know, project all our stuff onto him that, you know, here was a guy who was you know, kind of working in his back shed, the underdog, the kind of Roger Ebert, you know, dirt equals virtue, guy in the big glass building equals villain. That, you know, artisanal, old-fashioned, he wasn't in it for the money, but, like, there's no evidence he wasn't in it for the money. He was investing quite a lot of money into it, expecting a return. And, like, you know, uh, the, the, the counterpart to that with invention, too, is obsession, right? Because we love these people who are obsessed with this thing and following this vision, and it is partly because we mostly tell the stories of when that works out. Mm. You risk everything and then you win. That's brilliant. Louis the Prince, someone who risked everything, it didn't work out and it kind of wrecked his entire family. Mm. And his obsession, like when you're that obsessed and you're focusing on one thing, it means you're not focusing on anything else, right? So the romantic guy in his shed working on the thing, He's ignoring his wife. He's letting her raise all the kids. He's sucking in all the money. Everybody else has got to work two jobs to support him. And, you know, there are moments in Le Prince's story where Lizzie, his wife, was an artist in her own right, gets these great opportunities to go do something, to go be one of the first teachers at Stanford, all this stuff. And Le Prince is that guy who's like, no, 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 no. What I'm doing matters. You stay at home and look after the kid. Which, like, if I had a scene of Thomas Edison doing that, which he did version to that, he would go, see, fucking asshole, told you. Mm, but mm. because he's the underdog, because he disappeared, because he lost, we gloss over stuff that we would hold as kind of irrefutable evidence of assholery. I'm cursing a lot, but that happens. That's fine. That's fine. But, 
irrefutable evidence that that guy's a bad guy you know what i mean yeah yeah no absolutely and i mean two points that 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 raises for me was one one was the idea the steve jobs idea that um his death kind of seals his reputation as you know and you have you know he gets to be played by my uh, by michael fassbender and zuckerberg gets to be played by jesse eisenberg one of the more more dislikable actors in hollywood um and and the other thing i wanted to to, the other point that that um that that I we re, I really want to em- emphasize how Lizzie is kind of if anything she's the hero of the story she's the person yeah. who is sort of battling to keep his name alive keep his patents um uh, trying trying to wrest control of the patents trying to find find him and find out what happened to him and as you say a great personal sacrifice to her own to her own career sorry that's the village bells are going uh, just that's for lovely. I'm gonna yeah, I'm keeping this in for for local color, <laughs> just for our listeners. I'll just tell you, uh, I'm talking to Paul. Paul, you're in Canada at the moment, right? I'm in Edmonton, Alberta. Right, right. Well, that's quite close to. Is that where um, near where Terence Malick did Days of Heaven? I think so. Yeah, yeah. the uh, uh, the assassination of Jesse James was shot kind of in the prairies right around here. Right. Yeah, and Andrew Dominic is a big Malick fan and exactly uh, yeah 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 so that wouldn't surprise me so to, just for our to give some context to our listeners it's eight it's just now eight o'clock in the morning hence the bells telling us all to go to church because this is a catholic italian country and um uh, paul you your time is what about midnight now or it'll be midnight now yeah oh my god so what what midnight in alberta and uh and eight o'clock in uh in northern italy so that's 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 yeah. the context of bells ringing and and uh it's also probably why uh paul's been of such a sweary mary because he's <laughs> because it's like late and I'm <laughs> honestly awkward my seven-year-old will tell you i'm like this at seven in the morning and it's a All problem right. yeah <laughs> Oh, do you um, do you find it difficult not to swear in front of your children? Because when I was uh, bringing up my kids and they were little, I, we just like went, you know, not swearing is just not going to be an option. No, and it's also like my mom hates this, but I'm, I kind of have this thing of like she will know when it's appropriate. Do you know what I mean? Like she knows not to have a poo in the classroom. She can figure out not to say the F word in the classroom. And so it's not rampant, but occasionally, I'll, you know, if she captures a flying F word, it's not the end of the world. That's how we feel about it. And yeah. we'll see if that pays off in twenty years. I mean, it's partly it's partly defined by the fact that we're living in a country in which no one was understanding English. I mean, not no one, but <laughs> but you know, people in our village didn't understand. Does it? Don't understand it. And culturally here, um, especially old men or older men, they use swearing like punctuation, and there's no sense of you know, granddad, the children. Nobody ever says that. It's like, yeah, granddad can say what whatever he wants. Whatever he yeah. fucking wants. <laughs> there you go. Sorry, that was a little bit of a that was a little bit of digression, just caused by the bells of the village. But um, but yeah, that's so that's interesting that um, you're you've got similar parenting philosophy as as I, and and my yeah. kids are now grown and they're they're perfectly fine. So whatever I did or didn't do, seems they to can work. tell. You got to give them credit. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So we were talking about Lizzie as as the sort of yeah. heroine of the, 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 you know, the film that is no doubt going to be optioned from this book. Um, 
would uh, you know this would be the plum roll I would imagine. Yeah, and we and the book has been optioned. Um, yeah, thank you by a producer in France. Um, and it's like you'll know this. I, I do screenwriting stuff at the time. The great thing is I'm always like this is never happening, but it's a nice oh. paycheck every twelve months to like help with the gas bill or something. But the thing I had writing the book because you're right, it kind of feels like a movie, but at the same time. There's something very uncinematic about a guy at a bench trying to invent a thing. That's not dramatic. That's boring. And I used to think, like, I'd play, I'd play the score from the Prestige while I was writing. And I'd be like, this is kind of how I imagine, you know, whoever mm. shot that film is shooting this in my head. And so the vibe and the hook feels like a movie. But the actual action of, and then you spend seven years tinkering with lenses is not that dramatic. But if you then go, Oh, it's about this woman trying to figure out what happened, kind of going back. There's this fascinating thing where Le Prince, he was in New York with his family and working on a film camera, and he had this growing paranoia, and he decided New York is a bad place to be. And Lizzie became convinced that was because of Edison. Edison had a reputation as a thief, and they shared patent stories and that kind of thing. And so Le Prince finished working in Leeds where his father-in-law was and we had more resources and he felt he could work in private but he left the family in new york mm. and he only you know his eldest son was with was with him for a while and so there, there is a cinematic idea we talk about where if you have lizzie as your main character coming to leeds to figure out what's happened to a husband that she really hasn't seen in three or four years he's been working on this thing then you've got this idea of her trying to figure out what happened to him whether the invention worked and if she still knows this guy mm. while he's gone, which is kind of like a ghost story, which is cool. Return of Martin um, Blair sort of uh, idea. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Mm. Um, and I don't know. It's weird the stuff with the, you know, because I thought when I started writing the book, I was, there's a book by Brian Burris called Public Enemies, which the Michael Mann book is nominally based on. Mm. And the idea of Public Enemies is it's a year in the life of America's most wanted. And so it's it's not a biography of one of them, but it's Bonnie and Clyde, and it's little boy, pretty boy Floyd, and it's uh, Dillinger, and it's kind of a collective biography. And my first thought making this, when I pitched it to my agent was, this will be like a filmy public enemies. Mm. It'll have Le Prince, but it'll also have Leroy and Edison and Lumiere and Bouley and all these guys, all the way up to Melies. And the idea is, over 25 years, you know, it starts with all these people, but it ends up with Le Prince, who's the linchpin, let's say, but it's an ensemble. It ends with him disappearing. It ends with Melies and the Gamopanes selling toys and everybody's forgotten him. And it ends with Charles-Emile Renault, who made the first animated film, throwing all his stuff into the Seine and trying to kill himself. And the idea is these two parties, the Lumiere brothers and Edison, are left standing and everybody else is kind of Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. You know, met a tragic fate. And she was like, that sounds like a blob. You're never going to find a structure to this. And I was like, I absolutely am going to find a structure to this. And I came back six months later going, that's a blob. There's no structure to this. <laughs> And so I was like, okay, I've got to focus on the prints, but I guess I'll need name recognition. So Edison's got to be a big part of this. And then she and my editor were kind of like, you've got to trust people are going to care about the prints in this family, even if they don't know who they are. And so my assumption at that point was, okay, Louis is going to be the main character, obviously. Mm. But as you write, you find this thing where as I wrote, I would go, he might be the main character, but Lizzie's the best heart lizzie's the kind of heart of it because lizzie like she was like a young woman from yorkshire who's no one in her family's ever had a formal education Mm. and then her father who'd grown up in tenements you know eight brothers and sisters bunch of them die young he does really well with a couple of patents for a couple of boiler valves this and that and in the way you could in the industrial revolution he becomes pretty wealthy and so he's able to send lizzie and her brother away to study and so she starts in paris and she's working in the same workshop as rodin and she's got these big dreams and she parked everything to support her husband going i'm gonna make pictures move with no training no funding no nothing and which is a pretty heroic thing to do, especially when like her, you think of yourself as a modern emancipated kind of equal partner woman to go, oh, no, actually, I love this guy and I believe in this. So I'm going to do the thing that's kind of anathema to what I expected for myself. And she pops out the babies, raises all these kids. She works as a teacher. She sends him all the paychecks. She supports everything. Never doubt that it's going to work out. And it doesn't work out. And she's not only left to pick up the pieces, but in a really tragic way, becomes convinced that she's in direct opposition to the most famous guy in the world, who's Thomas Mm -hmm. Edison. And so it's got this kind of tragic, it's got this weird kind of like self-sacrifice turned detective turned tragedy. Sort of slightly delusional. Yeah. 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 Like by the end, like she was fully convinced that uh, she held these kind of opposing ideas of, Thomas Edison had my husband killed, but I also don't want to admit he's been killed. So I'm kind of sort of weaving these tales that he's still alive somewhere in a basement. Mm. It's 30 years later when her mind was kind of going. Mm. Um, you know, and to a great degree, I found while writing, she sacrificed more than he did, because at least Le Prince got to chase the dream. Mm. Mm. She got to just do support and kind of, you know, take a gamble and then lose everything mm. um and so she's brilliant and and again the first book was kind of the same where i thought oh the filmmaker guy will be the main guy um and it wasn't it was his wife was equally famous and all this stuff but um yeah it's that thing of like i can't remember who i was listening to the other day maybe it was Clooney on mm. wtf or something talking about the difference between like the biggest part and the best part in a movie you know what i mean and you and, and telling someone maybe it was Affleck, maybe it was about that 
Boston Bar movie, this idea of like, you take the best role in the movie, not the biggest role in the movie. Mm. Um, and Lizzie feels like the best role in the movie. Mm. Mm. Um, yeah, absolutely. And I think it, because it also serves as a corrective, and I want you to write this into your contract when they do sign the big film mm. deal, of not, because this, this drives me absolutely spare that there's always a wife next to or a romantic partner next to an obsessional genius who has a scene at some point where they say okay go and do your thing but when you've done it come back to us you know and it's this yeah. you know and, and he's basically kind of like the shrew nag or or the you know all of those negative uh misogynistic yeah. stereotypes of basically women are pulling you back to domesticity and that you have to go and you have to that's one of the ties you have to cut in order to achieve greatness and it's just like i've yeah. seen that as recently as ford versus ferrari you know it's just yes god damn it can't we think of a new you know can't we just do this differently it just it's just uh it's so stereotypical yeah. so boring and at best, it's, so it's like, unfair. God bless her. Yeah, yeah, yeah it really yeah, is. Yeah, it's really unfair. And it's, yeah, and it's the thing I always think about with invention and with making movies on a thing I'm writing up now. We kind of never think of it in terms of an ecosystem. You know, we like to go, well, he was a genius and he was driven and he would never give up. And there's no way you can do that without an ecosystem around you. And Le Prince, Lizzie was the main part of that. She's the heir that keeps the whole thing going. But there was also people he worked with who were instrumental to what he does. And that goes back to the Edison thing, where Edison, because he was a brand, he needed everybody who worked for him to be, basically work for hire. You know what I mean? You draw mm -hmm. something for Disney, it belongs to Disney. You did something for Edison, it belonged to Edison. Whereas Le Prince is a great example of none of it happens if you don't have a wife whose self-sacrifice was the opposite of that dramatic thing, but it was just like, that sounds fucking brilliant. That sounds like you could do it. I'll try my best to help. You know, no negative, no at best, God bless her. She's reluctantly doing it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and he had four guys in the workshop with him who were solving stuff, you know, day to day. Like none of these cases, the Lumiere brothers, none of them, the second you scratch the surface, you're like, oh wow, there's 25 other people. Who were yeah. instrumental to this. Well, let's well, go back to the Wizard of Oz. You pull back the curtain. There's a little guy yeah. pulling the levers, but behind the little guy, there are other little guys doing, helping him fix the levers to something to make it all work. Yeah, and I think it's because I, I guess there's always one, one, two, whatever, limited number of people who have the vision, and we love mm. the vision. It's not so sexy to be like, oh yeah, and I believe in the vision. Um. But, you know, and I like that because it, it, that story, it doesn't have any of those tropes, right? It doesn't have the wife who's like, you know, as soon as you're done, I'm putting up with this, but kind of thing. And it doesn't have anybody fighting over credit. Like none of the people the prince worked with came out later going, well, actually, I was, you know, they were all like, no, no, we did it together. And he was a genius and we loved following his lead. And it kind of really doesn't have any of the cliches. Mm. Um except and then he disappeared bum, bum, bum. that's the only one kind of. mm, mm. um and otherwise it's kind of in a weird not a lovely story but it's kind of very very human mm. that you know this guy had an idea and he 
was living in a time where you could make bank off an idea and it seemed accessible, right? It doesn't seem accessible now that I'm just going to go back there and invent an iPad. It doesn't seem accessible that I'm going to make a billion dollar movie. Mm. But back then it was a thing, like I have an idea. This could change everything for generations. And then it just kind of played out in a kind of human, you know, hopeful, you know, and the hopefulness is important because one of the reasons I kind of connected with the prince as I wrote is Edison never got movies. Like he was kind of late to it, kind of hoping it would make money, but he was like, it's a toy. I can't see why anybody likes it. Like even years later, he'd be like, I still don't get why people like this. <laughs> it's so funny that you say about him having vision and that's one of these things. And yet he's, he's, you know, he's completely blind to the commercial possibilities of the motion pictures. Like, oh, I yeah. Guess, I guess some, you know, it's like uh, the Hudsucker proxy, you know, for kids. <laughs> you know, when yeah. He so yeah. And that's the thing about vision is it's not like a, like you're going to miss out. Sometimes mm. your vision as it was for Edison was concrete furniture and cars made out of gold like you because your vision sometimes it hits and sometimes it doesn't and with this he didn't get it and the Lumiere brothers were like this will be sexy for a year or two and then something else will come whereas Le Prince has these notebooks where like he sketched out cinemas and he's like this is going to change politics and this is going to change no one's going to send their kid to war once they've seen what war actually looks like that's going to end and you'll be able to teach you know deaf and mute kids to like communicate without needing all of this and be able to like put this in school and there was no one else really on the record who had that vision and there's someone who loves movies for all those kind of idealistic quaint ideas it was really cool to go oh here's to go the guy who made the first one the oldest surviving one wasn't just trying to invent the product like the other guys he Mm. actually believed in it um which kind of had never computed into my sense of the invention of the movies. It's like these guys invented a machine. Mm. Mm. I, and, and maybe that, maybe that idea of of the effect of of cinema, you know, let's say, yeah. as an art form, <clears throat> politically and what have you. Maybe that's also, I mean, to, to flip that, those are really positive ideas of, you know, people are going to yeah. become pacifist, people are going to be more democratically engaged, people are going to be educated and what have you. But also, it is going to sort of not brainwash, is, is maybe too, too dumb a term, but it, it is also going to frame our narratives in a way which are not necessarily coincident with truth and not necessarily coincident with the best things in humanity so for instance drama you know you we were talking earlier why do we have this idea of just the visionary and not the ecological sort of background to it well that's kind of a little bit because drama is inherently well i don't fascistic is going too far but we want we we'd rather put everything in one character and have them lead the drama than say well it was complicated because ralph did went monday to tuesday and then you know jenny took off over wednesday and and to friday and it was this collect you know we're not cinema isn't good at collective endeavor it's good at one person doing it all it is, yeah. I'm, I'm friendly with this guy called Tristan Gallagher, who's a producer at a company called The Bureau. He produced Andrew Haig's Weekend and all his other films and that kind of stuff. And we had right. coffee like years ago, and we were talking about stuff. And he was saying the stuff he was looking at then, he was like, I really want to find a way. He was like, I'm bored of all, like, in the way he was saying about the reaction 
to outdated ideas. They're weirdly a mirror image of outdated ideas. And he was saying specifically, I want to find ways to tell movies that are about collective progress and action. And he had this great kind of insight of like, the stuff we're trying to deal with now, whether it's capitalism going off the rails or climate change or whatever, it was all stuff that needs collective response. But our media, particularly movies, is so designed to be about the protagonist that you know, it's not, I don't want to say harmful, that feels oversimplified, but it's not helpful. Oh, it's definitely and harmful. It is, <laughs> it's okay, it's harmful. And it really is like baked in. Like every, I went to film school, every screenwriting book, cut out the unnecessary character. Can you combine them? Can you make them one guy? Can you, it's designed to be that way. But Le Prince, in a very Victorian, white, middle-class kind of way, you know, to them, progress was going to be good, mm. period. All, mm. you know, anything new, it moves us forward. They almost had no conception that something could backfire, mm. Mm. Um, which is, you know, like, I have this thing, I was talking to my wife earlier, like I'm terrified of deep fakes and that stuff. I kind of can't, I, I have this really idealistic idea of what the moving image can do to us, but I'm also terrified of what it is now. I don't know that I could handle it if I was 15 years old or something. Um, and the kind of fatalist in me, and this feeds in something I'm writing now, I think everything good gets co-opted and just fucked to its exact opposite. And the movies are kind of that, in a way. Um, but that was refreshing to be writing about a guy who made the first and who only saw the positives. Mm. Mm. You know, only saw this is going to be amazing. And he'd been in the war and he'd been in the siege of Paris. And, and you know, it came from a really human place of like, well, no one's going to have to go through that again. If I can show mothers, they're going to be like, no, my son's not going. Yeah, everybody's going to watch Battleship Potemkin and going to go, right, no, that's... That, we're done. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, he didn't... And but again, what's interesting, too, is you can also see that as ego, right? You can also see him as going, I'm designing this machine that will fix everything. Yeah, the new Machiavelli, um, and, the sort of H.G. Wells science yeah. technocrat as a, I'll solve the world. Yeah. And so maybe part of it is is part of the times and the positivity about, well, we've got trains and phones and everything is great. And part of it may also be a guy going, I'm going to fix everything, you know, in a kind of lunatic way, which he may have been. That's another thing about writing about something that happened 130 years ago. Anytime you're trying to figure out who they were as people, unless you're quoting someone directly, you're making an assumption, mm, mm. you know, you know, I think about that, you know, with any friends I have or you have. For every five people I can find who say they're amazing, I'll find five people who say they're the worst people who's ever lived. So I could find five people who worked with Louis Le Prince saying he was a genius, he was lovely, whatever. That doesn't necessarily mean he was. Mm. Mm. Um, so for better or for worse, he saw the good things no one else saw and didn't foresee any of the potential bad. Yeah. But there's also like... And I know I'm rambling, but there is this kind of unpacking of, and I was trying to do this writing the book, what would it be like to think of movies if you'd never seen one or conceived of one? Because it's kind of well-documented with photography, how that completely changed people's ways of thinking of themselves. It became much more about the kind of physical embodiment of yourself and of thinking of death and family. And, you know, film kind of did that same thing and people became obsessed with seances and ghost films and what it meant to be mortal but 
you know, I was trying to put myself in the mindset of he's not he's not inventing the movies as I know them. He's inventing a thing. What was that thing to him? Mm. I've got to unpack a hundred years of thinking. It's obvious what it is. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, and it's 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 that idea of I mean I've we've lived through these technological things, me and you. Um, yeah, we we've had. I I remember going to the chemists with my little film of 26 photographs and yeah. handing it in and then going back four or five days later and picking it up and going through the and there being this distance between taking a photograph and seeing what yeah. actually turned out nowadays obviously nobody has that I don't have that I everybody is just taking instant snaps and, and looking at them instantly and the same is true of video same is true of TikTok yeah you know that's all um that's all changed really recently. Um, yeah, and it like, impacts your sense of presence. Sorry, but because that's no. one thing they had. With they were convinced that motion is like if something moves, it's alive. And they were just kind of coming to terms with, oh, well, we're making these machines do things that can't be life because they're. But there's this conviction that if you get people's images, their physical forms, even if they're black and white and flat or whatever, and you make them move that to all intents and purposes, that's presence, that's life, which obviously isn't true, but like that thing now of, of us trying to separate, you know, this is kind of a tangent, but I'm always fascinated by it. my daughter's seven, her and all her friends, they're camera ready. Mm, mm. Do you know what I mean? They know how to speak the camera. They've seen it enough on YouTube. They've got camera voices. Mm. And that's also about presence. That's also about what means you're here now you know if you're is the thing on the screen here now like i spend more time with stuff on my screen than my wife is that more here now than she is mm, mm. kind of thing and they were at the kind of very naive gateway into that of like well if your grandmother's dead but i can make her move and talk then she's basically here mm. you know and again seeing just the positive of that it goes down to the to the etymology even you know animation is you know yeah. anima is the soul so you you're, yeah. you're putting the soul into stuff that's uh, that uh, by by making it move yeah which is where i don't know if you've seen that creepy idea now that that they think i don't know if it's in the future or whatever that your alexa can speak in your you know dead lost relative's voice to make them present mm. so you know you can go you know grandma add blue roll to my shopping list and your dead grandma says she's doing it or whatever which is creepy as hell but it's not that different i guess from a moving picture of someone who's died like i remember as a kid being really not unsettled but it was an, an uncanniness built into movies of humphrey bogart's been dead forever but yes. i have a relationship with him yes because of stuff. I know what he sounds like. I know how he moves. I've watched him over and over again. I know the twitches of his face. And he's been dead for ages before I was born. That's mm. weird. Mm. And that, that I love that. I love it's interesting to me that the prince disappeared in a sense because the whole point of the movies to them was to keep stuff present. Mm. And then he goes non present. Mm. And the fundamental kind of uncanny weirdness of movies is that it, unless something's been made in the last five you're continually kind of communing with you're having a seance really you're watching mm. dead people do something um in a way that's believable even though it's not embodied in the same way a spectral thing would be believable i remember uh, having this factoid i don't know where i've got it from but it's, i i 
I haven't sourced it, put it that way, but I think it's fascinating that um, the original laughter tracks that, that they used for, um, you know, right up until Friends and up until, you know, modern day sitcoms were all sourced from the 50s and were basically laughter tracks that they, they you know, they weren't using, you know, they weren't re-recording the people laughing. They were uh, they weren't re-recorded. They were just putting it on from these, you know, punching it up here and there with this. So basically, you know, by the time you get to the '90s and the 2000s, the laughter that you're hearing on your favorite sitcoms is frequently dead people laughing. Like that's disturbing. That's a health scare. <laughs> Isn't that's it crazy? Isn't it? <laughs> like that? That's gonna ruin it for me. The next time I'm on Netflix and I go, I can't pick any of the shit, so I'll watch the familiar shit. I'm yeah. now gonna be like, that's. People You're watching... who were dead when this happened, laughing at something else. Yeah, yeah. But a Big Bang Theory, they're, they're actually, the studio audience is actually just dead because that's just such an right. funny program that I can't You're believe. lucky if you survive it at home. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, I mean, that, I, that's such a... That's what I loved about the book, is it made me think so much about cinema in general. It, may, it, it, it is this murder mystery it is this you know you mentioned the da vinci code uh, earlier on and obviously this yeah. is a non-fiction book so it's, it's a lot different but it does have that same sort of drive um yeah i remember when everybody was reading the da vinci code we all got very sniffy afterwards and like oh no it's rubbish obviously but um, i like to convince myself that as i was reading it i was like this is terrible but i'm not sure that's what happened yeah i, I raced through it in like two days on the beach so <laughs> i'm pretty sure i really liked it i'm pretty positive i really liked it for a critic i'm really uncritical when it comes to enjoying stuff i just like enjoy it and then afterwards yeah. think i loved it but that doesn't necessarily mean it was any good it just means yeah. i loved it you know um speaking of loving things what would be mm. your uh what would be your recommended film book for us uh what what book have you loved uh to do with the world of cinema to do with the history of film to do wh whichever you prefer this is a weird thing, right? Because I read a bunch and I'm reading, I was thinking about this. I was like, John's going to ask me this and everybody I'm going to recommend has been on the podcast recently. So that doesn't work. I'm reading Charles Elton's Semino book, which is really good. Mm. Um, and I was thinking about that earlier and I was like, you know what? Because I really like, I really love movies, but I've realized I don't really get drawn to writing about movies because mm. there are people, including yourself, plenty of people who can write about movies better than I can. And I, I was like, oh, I like writing about people who make movies rather mm -hmm. than movies. And so I was trying to think if I was recommending books about people who make movies, what would it be? And a double feature I came up with with was uh, John Gregory Dunn's The Studio mm. and Spike Lee's Gotta Have It, which is his. So the, the studio is John Gregory Dunn getting full access in 1968, 69 as the studio system's basically dead. Mm. to 20th Century Fox and writing a really funny kind of acerbic um, book about how that all goes. And then Spike Lee's got to have it 87, 89. And it's essentially Spike Lee's diaries and process of making She's Gotta Have It as a guerrilla independent film. And I remember being in film school and reading Spike Lee's Gotta Have It and going, this is amazing. This feels like I'm with him in the car you know, all the minutiae of, of, I feel shit today, this worked out, I lost some weight, I hate that guy, I came up with this idea here, you know, those would be mine. And then this isn't, you'll probably know about this, and it's not a book, but it counts. There's a PDF of 
the first story session for Raiders of the Lost Ark, which is mm. Spielberg, Lawrence Kansan, and George Lucas, which is, you know, I don't know, 60 pages, 80 pages transcript of them just talking through it. And it's online, you can find it fairly easily. And it's three really great filmmakers, I think, coming up with the worst possible ideas <laughs> for anything for the longest time. He should wear Indiana. a top hat. He should wear a top he's, hat and carry a cane. <laughs> terrible ideas. You know, he's like, he's a playboy, he's an alcoholic. He was dating Marion, who was just 13 years old. You go, uh, that's not good. Oh, but that by stayed, the end that of stayed it. stayed in, unfortunately. <laughs> Exactly. Well, you did I was a child. You were sure. old enough. Oh no. Exactly. Oh no. But no. you, the great thing about that PDF is the ideas are terrible, and slowly, they just get to the good ones. Mm. Um, and I love that one in terms of making films because it's like, okay, Steven Spielberg has a bunch of shit ideas at some point. Um, and so that's my double and a half feature of books about people making films. Mm. John Gregory does the studio. Spike Lee's got to have it, and that PDF. You can dig it up. Yeah, I definitely will. I've I've not I've not heard of that. So I'm that, I'm really looking forward to. I'm going to do that today. Um, I remember it's great. I, I remember talking to Tom Schoen about uh, Spielberg, and and one of the things he said, which stuck with me, was um, Spielberg has a lot of ideas, and they're not always good ones. You know, it's just like he's he's just a, you know loads and loads and loads of ideas, and then and then you, it's it, his films are as good as the filters around him, really. Yeah, I remember reading. The McBride, first McBride biography of him, and there's a bit in it about how when he was so Spielberg had this long contract at Universal, and because he'd locked himself in that long contract, everybody else, Coppola, Lucas, Milius, they're all off making great movies, and he's making television, and he mm -hmm. can't get out of it. Um, and you know, Mike Medavoy's agents like, you got to break this contract, and Spielberg's got a daddy thing with Sid Sheinberg's, so like, I can't, he believed in me, and so one of the scripts he was really dead set on making as a feature to break out of television was like an updated flower power in 1968 uh, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves but the dwarves were Chinese guys working at San Francisco Chinese Laundry and it's terrible it sounds racist and sexist <laughs> and awful but there's like five pages where it's like he spent a year trying to make this yeah. and you just go thank fuck he didn't yeah yeah that would have been terrible I talked to Mike Medavoy this week and he told me about ditching him as a as a thing and it's sort of funny that you sort of think you ditched Spielberg but when you hear about this sort of stuff it's like well you know you, it wasn't necessarily obvious Spielberg would be Spielberg it wasn't and I spoke to Medavoy like three weeks ago for this next thing I'm writing and right the thing that's really interesting is I think I don't know how you felt about Medavoy I get the sense he was cocky as hell back then uh -huh. um, but he was saying this thing where he was like, I really just thought he'd be ripping people off. Mm. I thought, you know, Francis and George and Philip Kaufman for some reason. He was like, those were the really intelligent, well-read, creative guys. And I thought Steven Spielberg was going to make B-movies. Mm. Mm. And, and, you know, and I was like, you got to break this contract. And he was like, I can't. I walked out on him. And that was that. Um, which is interesting because you, you there. I don't know how, why we why I got onto this, but you also get people back then like Milius and stuff, where it's like, oh no, he was the only guy who like somehow instinctively knew what people wanted, which again is back to that vision, one guy, weird male genius thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, did you see the documentary about Milius? I, think I did, might, yeah. I might just be called Milius, actually. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, he's, he's a, they, 
I don't know. I, I I have a problem with Milius just because he's such a right wing blowhard, and there's uh, yeah, there are so many. You know, I remember Red Dawn coming out when it came out, and it was just like God Almighty, this is. We seem to have lost that. I mean, I mean, I lived through the eighties. I remember there being a real oppo- a sort of opposition to the idea of Top Gun and things like that. There was a real sort of like this stuff's just war Reaganite propaganda, you know. And nowadays it seems to be, yeah, yeah, more of that, please, <laughs> you know, without anybody. It's, it's back to that shit that everything that was good becoming shit and everything that was shit becoming good kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's a weird, I think it's in the documentary at the end where they're like, one of the operations in Iraq or something was called Operation Red Dawn. There's just that thing where like, I don't, it's an interesting thing I feel now where I think we've, and this is relevant to movies, where I think we're so used to everything being like are you for it are you against it but it's in a very shallow kind of like are you a stan or are you a hater kind of mm. tribal way and i don't necessarily know that it's principled mm. anymore where that where you're like that crosses a line and that feels unhealthy for us it's more just like are you a stan are you a hater are you one of them are you one of us are you hashtag this hashtag that where you know i was a bit too late for red dawn but i remember stuff like that we go oh this seems iffy mm. and now it just you know nothing you know i have this about marvel films but like I, I can enjoy watching marvel films but i can also be weirdly uncomfortable with the fact that i'm you know basically taking my kids to pentagon funded propaganda stuff about mm. big muscly arrogant men in battle gear do you know what i mean yeah no absolutely um, absolutely i i was watching stranger things uh the latest thing and i was just like the 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 way guns from the very first season are put into the hands of children is yeah. is just freaking weird and the thing that's even weirder is nobody seems to think it's weird everybody seems to just yeah i've not heard anyone go you know, children shoot it learning to shoot things is that yeah that's the solution i think the quiet place part two as well has that as a serious storyline is don't worry the kids learn to shoot a gun so so that saves the day and it's like are we it's it's weird right because the the flip side of that feels like anything like i'll read books watch movie where a character does something morally ambiguous or reprehensible Mm. And that's meant to be what these stories are about. You know what I mean? You don't go like this whole thing. And I guess Marvel's first stage with it, but this idea that there are people out there who watch Goodfellas and go, well, he was clearly making gangsters sexy. Like our understanding, our like literate reading of narratives has flattened out in a weird way. Yeah. Where the kids shooting a gun were like fucking awesome. Mm. And then something ambiguous and unpleasant being in a film we go well that must mean the person who made it is a horrible person because he's showing me something uncomfortable and so being able to digest the stuff i meant to digest about everybody being an asshole as you were saying earlier mm. and not being okay with the idea that guns are just everywhere mm. we, uh, there's this weird topsy-turviness which is when i go shit do i sound like i'm 65 because i'm not like i haven't seen stranger things and part of it is i'm not a nostalgist because that makes me really uncomfortable to kind of like things used to be better or so I'm making a Spielberg ripoff thing I'm never interested I'm like I don't that feels weird but there are times where I catch myself going are we all have we lost our minds and I mm. sound like my dad and then mm. I go oh 
Yeah, but your dad, your dad was cool. <laughs> exactly. Well, see, I was, my dad was like, the reason I got into movies was he had a wall of VHS tapes. Right. And I would just like pick one, anything that looked cool. Like I remember when I was four, four or five watching Raiders of Lost Ark just because it was a rainy day. And I was like, that dude looks good. He's bare chested. He's got a whip. This looks awesome. You know, I remember putting on Batman Returns and, mm. you know, like everybody having your life changed by Michelle Pfeiffer and having no idea. Just go. I didn't know who Batman was. had my comics. Just being like, that looks sick because yeah. he had everything on the wall, yeah. like everything. So he was pretty cool. That's amazing. That's great. Well, listen, Paul, thank you so much for uh, for for being my guest. Thank you so much for Thanks the book. For the me. book is called The Man Who Invented Motion Pictures. A true tale of obsession, murder, and movies. Okay, and that's available wherever you get good books. Um, so uh, yeah, thanks, thanks so much, Paul. Yeah, thanks for putting up with me talking in circles. Great. So that was my conversation with Paul. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it as much as we obviously did. I think we had a really good time. And um, as you can tell, I enjoyed his book. And uh, I think you should too, if you, uh, if you have the opportunity to read it. So my thanks go to Paul uh, for being my guest, Elliot Atkins for the music, Ali Harwood for the art, and you, listener, without which all of this would be a vacuous, vapid, vain endeavor without ever any true deep profound significant effect in the universe so thank you very much and uh, we'll talk next week take care powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com. <laughs>